Thanks, everyone. Uh, so, good morning. For those who don't know me, my name's Mark. I'm on, uh, one of the leaders at King's Church. And for the last few weeks, we've been going through this series called Love That We Might Love. And we've just been working through a book in the Bible, which is 1 John. And we all learn by repetition, don't we? I've got three kids, and I know most of you know my three kids, little bundles of joy, most of them, most of the time. Um, But I don't know if you've ever had that experience where a kid latches on to a particular book, and they love it so much, and that every evening, when it's story time, they bring the same book, and they hand it to you, and it's like your heart just sinks. It's like, oh, not again. Um, And you're thoroughly sick and tired of that book. But they love it, and they read it, and they absorb it, and they know it off by heart. And it's important, and we learn that way. And um, I don't know where your mind is at this morning, whether it's busy with stuff from work, at home, but before we kick off, I just want us to be quiet. We're going to play a little bit of music, and I just want you to listen to it for a minute. violins, one cello, just eight bars of music, but it gets repeated 28 times through Packlebell's Canon. And I was genuinely worried when I started looking at these verses that Philip asked me to speak on and think, oh, we've been speaking on them for the last month. You know, how am I going to get something interesting? How am I going to get something new out of this? And I think John's letter is a bit like the biblical version of Packlebell's Canon. You know, he's building his points on top of each other. He's doing it time and time again. He's got his main themes, and he's repeating them, but each time he's adding a variation. Perhaps he's going a little bit deeper into a certain point. And it all comes together in these verses that we're going to look at. And it comes to something of a climax. And what I want you to do today is to listen for these variations. Don't switch off just because we've covered it before. Because actually, there's some really key points here, some key messages that John writes in this letter. And I think that God wants us as a church just to be really open to, uh, to listen to with our hearts and our minds, just as we seek to be a church, a family that loves each other. So... Let me read the verses to you. They'll come up here, or if you want to follow them in your Bibles, it's in 1 John chapter 4. And we'll kick off from verse 7, and we'll go to chapter 5, verse 5. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So in summary, I think the key messages that John wants to uh, talk to us, that God wants us to hear today, that he's been building up throughout the, the last few chapters, is a clarity on who God is and what love is. Some challenges on how and why we love each other. And a conviction of what this means for those who believe in Jesus. So clarity on who God is. You can't escape the key themes in John, and you've got it by now. It's love your neighbor, love your brother and sister, love one another, and it's repeated time after time. And up until now, as we've covered in the last few weeks, we've had various definitions of love. And one of the key things that all of uh, this is centered on is this definition of agape love. So agape is the Greek word used um, originally by John when he uses the word that's translated into English as love. What does that mean? Well, its definition is one of an unselfish, sacrificial love from God that we also then reflect back to God. And it's different, as Philip really helpfully shared a couple of weeks ago, it's different from like the human interpretation that we often put on love. It's not a sexual love. It's not a familial love. It's not a love between brothers and sisters or friendship. There's something very divine about it. And also, there are some great examples biblically where this word agape is also used throughout the Bible. So we've got Paul talking to the church in Corinth. I won't repeat it, many of you all know it, but it's all about love, it's patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. And if John's focus is so much on agape love, then also it's perhaps helpful just to reflect on how does John refer to agape love. And earlier in chapter 3, John summarizes this by saying, Well, agape love is a love that's demonstrated by deed and by truth, not by word or talk. He says it's a love that led Jesus to lay down his life. And so if Jesus is the example by which we're meant to live, then we should also be willing to lay down our lives. And it's a love that's demonstrated by us sharing with others who are in need. 
and caring for our brothers and sisters, specifically those who are in the church. And now if we look at the verses that we've read today, John brings, I think, real clarity to how he wants us to understand this kind of love and how it needs to shape both our view of God but also how we respond to it. In verses 7 and 8, there's a couple of key phrases that we need to, I think, really latch on to. It says, For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, so the first phrase, love is from God. It reinforces what we're saying about agape love. So agape love is from God. It's not a human, earthly love. And the second phrase, God is love. So to understand God is to understand love. If we can understand perhaps a bit more about what this agape love looks like, this unconditional, never-ending, selfless love, then perhaps we'll get a little bit closer to understanding God. Then in verses verses 9 and 10, John actually leads by saying, in this. I actually think... For me, it was quite helpful to say, well, instead of in this, if we replace it with because of this, I think it becomes a bit easier to read in terms of how we we often write things today. And so if we look at that, it says, because of this, so because God is love, God sent his only son into the world. And John then uses this this phrase, the propitiation for our sins. Um, So I thought I knew what it meant, but I kind of double-checked in the dictionary just to make sure. But it's not a word that we use um, very much. But ultimately, it's just referring to the gospel. So it's referring to the fact that God sent his son to die on the cross. That on that cross, he died. And in that process, he took all of the punishment that actually, that punishment was stuff that we deserve, the things that we've done wrong or will do wrong in the future. But he defeated death because he rose again. All of that was because God wanted us to be able to have a relationship with him. And sin just gets in the way of that. God wants us to have a relationship with with him that's perfect. And he's a perfect and powerful holy God. And all of that because God is love. And that's such a profound statement. It's hard to get your head round. I think as humans, perhaps, we'll never fully grasp what that, that concept means. But again, I think there's a couple of key points. Firstly, it's really important to know that God's love is unconditional. So God loved us first. After all, if God is love, then it's who he is. It's something fundamental about him. It doesn't depend on anything else. John calls this out specifically if you look at verse 10. It says, it's not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. So it's not about whether or not we love God back. It's all about God loving us. And he loves you, and he loves me. It's not based on who we are. It's not based on what we've done. It's not based on whether we respond even, or whether we return that love. The love originates, or this love originates, and is driven only by God. He loves and will always love you. And you can be confident in that love. Secondly, if we go to verses 12 and also in 15 and 16, John lands his next major point. Whether or not we receive this love is conditional. So we've got a part to play in this. And it's up to individuals whether or not we take that opportunity. 
We'll come back to verse 12, but if we jump to 15, it says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. John uses this word abide several times throughout this chapter and I think it's really important that we understand what the impact is. It's quite simply the word abide just means to dwell in or to live in. Quick question for you, who knows what this is? DNA, yeah. So DNA carries the... um, all of the genetic information, it's our, it's our makeup uh, that defines every single one of our characteristics from the color of our eyes to our body shape to our height, fundamentally defines who we are. And you know, if God is abiding in us, living in us, part of us, and God is love, then love is abiding in us. And love really is part of your DNA, is part of who you are. So, what's the condition then? What do we have to do? to get this love. Well, it's simply that you have to be a Christian. You have to have that belief in the gospel to acknowledge that Jesus died for you to forgive your sins and rose again. And God's love for you is unconditional. But whether or not you accept that and fully experience it, there's a choice there. And that part is conditional. For, For me, perhaps one of the, I guess, the best ways I got this somewhat right in my own head, it was really when I became a dad. And I got a bit of a flavor for, for what it's like. My kids, they're a part of me. And I'm part of them. That's never going to change. They've got a choice, though. I guess it's easier when they're little. They return that love, um, and it, it's brilliant. They come up, they give you cuddles, but as they get older and they start thinking for themselves, I guess that's not going to be guaranteed. And it's going to you know, break my heart if they get older and they don't return that love that I feel for them. But I can't fully control that. I'll keep on loving them. John closes verse 12 with saying that love is perfected when we love each other. I think just as when my kids love me back and the feelings that that generates in my heart and returns in return of the love that I feel for them, then I get a glimmer of what John is talking about when he calls this about this perfection of love between God and between us. So the next part I wanted to look at was the challenges that this brings on, on perhaps why and how we should love each other. So why we should love? Well, for those that don't believe in Jesus, I think there's a question to ask yourself. Do you want to experience something of this unconditional love that will change your life? But for those that, who are a Christian, who do believe in Jesus, John gave us both a command and a challenge. The command is simple, and we've covered it before, right? It's love your brothers and sisters within the church. The challenge is that, as John rightly calls out in these verses, nobody has ever seen God. I think it's something that we can all relate to. Who here in your past has just been battling with something or battling or struggling with your faith and your belief? And God, if I could see you, it would be so much easier if you were here in front of me. Then I could believe. John Stott summarizes this quite brilliantly. Uh, I tried to put it in my own words, but I couldn't improve it. So I'm just going to read it to you. And he writes, The invisibility of God is a great problem. It was already a problem to God's people in Old Testament days. 
Their pagan neighbors would taunt them, saying, where is now your God? Their gods were visible and tangible, but Israel's God was neither. Today in our scientific culture, young people are taught not to believe anything which is not open to empirical investigation. How then has God solved the problem of his invisibility? The first answer is, of course, in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the invisible image of the invisible God. John 1:18. no one has ever seen God, but God, the only Son, has made him known. That's wonderful, people say, but it was 2,000 years ago. Is there no way by which the invisible God makes himself visible today? And there is. We return to 1 John 4.12. No one has ever seen God. It's precisely the same introductory statement. But instead of continuing with reference to the Son of God, it continues, if we love one another, God dwells in us. In other words, the invisible God who once made himself visible in Christ now makes himself visible in Christians if we love one another. It it is a breathtaking claim. Isn't that powerful? The church does exist for those who are not yet members of the church. But it's also true that the love that we exhibit within the church to each other should be one of the most powerful magnets drawing others in. John, after all, says in, John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 35, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And we can see this in how the church grew in the years after Jesus. And there's some exciting evidence outside of the Bible of the real impact of the church just demonstrating this love, which I found incredibly encouraging. I won't go through the, the quotes I've got, but if you're interested, I can show them to you afterwards. But uh, there was an early Christian scholar, Origen, who 200 years after Christ wrote about how, how the church was flourishing and growing. And then also, around the same time, slightly earlier, a philosopher called Athenagoras, he had to write to the Roman emperors saying, when nothing that the Romans were doing were able to prevent this rapid growth of Christianity. And he closes in that with saying, in short, the people within the church, although they're uneducated, although they're not very good at preaching. In short, they love their neighbours as themselves. Personally, I found that quite encouraging, a bit of a release as I was preparing this. But we can see that the early church, in an environment where the Roman government wanted to quash Christianity completely, was apparently mysteriously growing and growing and growing. But actually, the reason it was growing wasn't from it being a brilliant service, from it being brilliant at preaching. It was from people in the church loving each other. So I'd say let's not understate the importance that loving each other today has on demonstrating the love that is God. So how should we love each other? I think there are two words that summarize this for me. First is completely, and the second is selflessly. So completely, Jesus says in Luke 10, 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He uses the word all a lot. That means everything, all of your soul, every part of your strength, every part of your mind. And love your neighbor just like you love yourself. 
selflessly. Well, from verses 9 onwards uh, in 1 John, it's all about a selfless sacrifice. And for me, this is the clincher. This is the thing, perhaps, that sets Christians apart from, uh, I guess, other great philanthropists that are out there who do give massively, who do give a huge portion of their time and their money. You take Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, two of the richest men in the world, and Warren Buffett has said that he'll give 99% of his wealth to good causes. Don't get me wrong, that is brilliant, and that wealth will do a massive amount of good. But that 1% that remains is still $860 million. So how self-sacrificial is that giving? I, I don't know. But... What John is saying, a selfless, sacrificial love for others, a giving of love when nothing is expected in return, is what John says will set apart the church and will speak volumes to those who haven't encountered Jesus Christ. The church and the love that the church shows is to show that God is love, that God is in the church, God is in you. And when people see you loving someone else in the church, loving selflessly, loving sacrificially, before your own personal interests. They don't see a person doing a good deed. They will see Jesus. And that, quite simply, is why it's so important that we, that we heed John word, John's words. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Completely, selflessly, and sacrificially. As a church, can I encourage you? I'm excited by some of the things that we see happening across King's Church. Um, just as Anna was sharing, just some wonderful, wonderful examples of how people in the church have loved Anna and Dan selflessly and sacrificially. And Anna and Dan, we will totally miss you guys when, when you go because you have given back completely and sacrificially as well. And you have given so much to the church. So thank you. I think so much of this we don't see, but it still goes on. Can I ask you just for a moment, let's turn our attention inwards. I would like you to ask yourself, do you demonstrate a love for God with all of your heart, your mind, and your soul? And if you look into your heart, would you say you demonstrate selfless and sacrificial love to others in the church? I think asking ourselves this question can often prompt a couple of responses. I, I can relate to both of these. The first is, I, I don't feel particularly well-loved by others. Why should I love them? Or, I'm doing okay. I give enough of my time to do things for others. I don't need to do anything. But can I encourage you, if you relate to these questions, perhaps if you feel God's Spirit giving you a little prod right now, you're not alone, but it's so important that we address it. It's so important that John in verse 8 says, anyone who does not love does not know God. Now please, I don't want you to worry when we read that verse. I don't want you to feel that if you haven't done anything particularly selfless over the last month because you've been dealing with a crisis, you've been busy at work, you've got stuff going on at home. But we should look at the pattern in our lives. If somebody were to characterize you and your life, would they say that you demonstrate a selfless love for others? Consider what that pattern looks like. Do you need to get that pattern trending upwards again? So lastly, I want to look at a conviction in what 
all of this means for us. How can we move forward with it? How do you take these answers to these really hard questions and achieve something that might seem impossible? I think God's given us two ingredients to help us achieve this. Firstly, it's in our DNA, and we've got the Holy Spirit. We should have confidence that it's in our DNA. And I think as Ehi said, um, brought her word so helpfully about holding on to the truth, not listening to the lies of the devil. This is the truth that we can hold on to, that God is love, God is in us, and love is in us. It's all inextricably connected, and we should have confidence in that. It's true, and it's a promise, and we should hold on to it in our hearts and in our souls and in our minds. And we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're not doing this in our own strength. John says in verse 13, all of this is possible because he has given us of his spirit. So if you don't feel confidence that love is in your DNA, that you don't feel you've got the strength or capability to demonstrate self-sacrificial love, then I'd encourage you to look at the cross with fresh eyes and call out to God and ask his spirit to help you demonstrate that kind of love. I want you to be inspired and be empowered. And God does respond. It moves things away from a logical battle in your mind to something that's actually more of a heartfelt response. So it's not in your hands, but in the hands of a God who loves you and who made you to be in his image. And this is something that I can just really relate to. When I was younger, and I've been a Christian for years and grew up in a family home, um, and I process things very much internally, and Kate chuckles at this, but I will be halfway through a sentence and I'll pause, and internally I'm just working out the next bit of what I want to say to make sure it's fully formed um, before I speak it. It's just how I am, but it's a, a knock-on effect of this is that I like everything to have a nice, logical, worked-through conclusion. I researched and I read into like, the physical evidence for Jesus and the support for the Bible. Don't get me wrong, I've been fully convinced of that uh, for a long time, both, I guess, logically, and it was a real genuine, uh, and is a genuine heartfelt belief. But I think I would say, whilst I believed logically and believed in Jesus and what he'd done and felt it in my heart, the balance was weighted much more on the logical side. And there'll always be people who can out-argue my logic. I've certainly had various debates in the past where I've come away feeling that they had managed to out-argue me. But equally, there'll be cleverer people than them who'll be able to out-argue their points when I've stumbled. And it was actually in a church service, in a quiet personal moment, I asked God to give me more of a heartfelt confidence in him. And there wasn't an immediate transformative effect, but it did absolutely start a process in my life where through his spirit, I felt genuinely increasingly empowered by him, a feeling in my heart and a confidence in my belief that was bigger than the logical processes I'd been going through. And with that came an increase in love and affection and care for others that I hadn't expected, but that I hadn't felt before. One helpful way, perhaps, to summarize this, just to wrap up now, as we've been talking uh, about all of these things, is just as it will come up on the screen, but God loved first, and he sent his son for us as a demonstration of his unconditional love. And that makes it possible for you and me to love each other if we believe in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And that comes together as the ultimate perfect reflection of God's love. But around all of this, it's all made possible because we're empowered 
by his spirit. And through this, the world will see God's love. You know, perhaps if the band could come up. And as we close, I'd like us to reflect on some of the themes that John has been building up to. I'd like you to think, is there one particular area which God is speaking to you about right now? If we go back to the beginning and the analogy of Packlebell's Canon, where we've got a simple melody, but it's only by the culmination of several musicians playing together, playing in harmony, that melody comes to its ultimate fruition. And which part of that melody do you need to focus on? Is there something on your heart that God's speaking to you? Something perhaps to help you contribute to the church as a whole that will help us demonstrate a love for one another that will have an impact on the world. And specifically, I believe that God's got two very distinct areas for some of us. I think firstly, if you're not a Christian but want to experience something of the agape love that God has for you, it'd be great to pray for you afterwards. And if you are a Christian, let's ask the Holy Spirit to increasingly stir our hearts in a selfless love for each other. You know, is that a gap that you think is present in your life? Do you perhaps get the message but struggle to feel it in your heart? I think we should have confidence in our DNA, confidence that God abides in us and love abides in us. And that's a truth that we should hold on to. It's a promise we should ask the Spirit to help us have that confidence and to put it into practice. So I think perhaps just as the band plays um, this last song, feel free to join in in the worship, or let's just reflect, and then there'll be an opportunity to respond as well.